So as I mentioned, we're going to be wrapping up uh, this chapter and starting to kind of actually ease into chapter 13. These next two Sundays will go pretty quickly. Next Sunday, uh, we're going to cover actually the entirety of chapter 13 in one flyby uh, picture. Uh, so I actually would encourage you ahead of time, if I forget to later, uh, between now and next week, really try to read all of chapter 13, just so that you have some... Uh, Preparation, some some mindset before you uh, get here next Sunday, but we're going to try to tackle that all in one week from just kind of a big picture overview. A lot of that has to do with uh, stuff that we call like end times type uh, stuff. So uh, it's really interesting, um, but we're gonna we're gonna try to just tackle it in one week so that we don't uh, lose sight of the big picture of what that section's all about. So uh, if you're able to do that before. Uh, next week, but otherwise, go ahead and stand. We're going to read from uh, Mark 12, starting in verse 35, and we're going to work all the way down through uh, verse 2 of chapter 13. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 35. And remember, for context here, Jesus has been uh, kind of duking it out here with the, uh, the the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders in the temple. And this is kind of the final uh, chapter of that uh, debate between them. And so it says in verse 35, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will be not left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You have a seat. Let's pray and ask God for his favor on our study this morning. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to this uh, final uh, chapter uh, in this battle between Jesus and the religious leaders, we would just ask for humility. Um, it's so easy to look at these things and to, uh, to distance ourselves and to see ourselves on the side of uh, uh, the, the, good, the good guys and to not uh, see where this maybe speaks to our own heart and our own struggles. And so uh, I just would just pray for honesty and transparency this morning uh, for our own hearts as we sit under your teaching. Uh, help us to see, Lord, that you care uh, immensely about what is on the inside of us rather than just how we act on the outside. Um, Lord, that is the, the, the true... Uh, demonstration uh, of worship and relationship with you. So give us just complete honesty as we talk about that this morning. We would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I know that uh, a number of you were part of our winter camp just a few weeks ago. Um, one of the games that we played at winter camp that was fun to, to see people really get into the spirit of was the game Finding Joy. So if you were one of the people who found joy at camp, and I'm not meaning just emotional joy, but if you were one of the people who actually literally found joy at camp, raise your hand. 
Nice. So we got a couple of you, a couple of our Finding Joy champions. So uh, the idea was that there was the little figurine doll from the movie Inside Out, and you had to find her. And if you did, you got a prize. So uh, did somebody actually end up taking Joy home with them after camp? You did? You gave it to Espen? So Espen has Joy. Espen has Joy eternally. Excellent. I love it. So obviously, uh, it was kind of a, a, a cheesy... Uh, way to connect uh, our camp to uh, the theme that uh, we were discussing for the weekend. But if you know anything about the movie Inside Out, who's seen the movie Inside Out before, right? So, okay, fairly, fairly good number of you, right? So uh, the reality is here, so much of who we are on the outside, and that movie kind of made it clear, right? So much of who we are on the outside is dictated by who we are on the inside. And yet so often, what you get on the outside doesn't always match what is happening on the inside. Uh, I know a, a story of a guy uh, who, who loved cars. He loved kind of uh, working on cars. He would buy cars, kind of fix them up, flip them, and you know, sell them uh, to others. Uh, really, really cool mechanic in that sense and did this as a hobby. Well, uh, he found a car online one time where he, he this was a, a very rare one, one that he had not come across and uh, he was super excited. Uh, it was fairly pricey, but he knew that with the right work, he could really turn it into something special. So he, he purchased the, the car from this guy and had it shipped to his house uh, only to discover there was a, an incredibly major problem with this car. Do you know what that problem was? It had no engine. He made the crucial mistake of not doing his homework and investigating all the aspects of it. So basically what he had was a car that was uh, good looking on the outside, had all the right uh, bones and looks on the outside, but on the inside missing the most crucial of element for this car to run. The reality is looks can be deceiving, which is why the old cliche remains true. You don't judge a book by its cover. In many ways, this all draws us to the point Mark is trying to make for us in the passage we're going to explore this morning, which is this, that Jesus cares far more about what is on the inside than he does what is on the outside. Jesus cares far more about what is on the inside than on the outside. Today, Jesus is going to close uh, the book on this section of Mark. He's going to deal the, the final decisive blows on this battle with the religious establishment in the temple that's been going on for the last two chapters. And as he does so, he's going to expose them. Uh, essentially, he is going to turn them inside out so that everyone can see and understand that their external deeds are motivated by selfish internal desires. And as we go through this passage, I would encourage you again to examine your own heart. Certainly, I want you to be amazed and awed by the wisdom and the power of Jesus that Mark has been really setting at the forefront of all these passages here. But I also want you to allow Jesus' words to be directed your own way. To even pray right now, like David in Psalm 139, that uh, God would search you. That he would know your heart to try you and know your thoughts to see if there would be any grievous way in you and to lead you in the way everlasting, right? That is the hope and the prayer as you sit here this morning is that you would have humble enough hearts to, to look at, is there any aspect of this that is true in my own life? So let's begin. We're going to divide this up into to three different sections this morning. And I want us to first begin by seeing how Jesus' question exposes among the religious leaders a lack of understanding. How Jesus' question exposes a lack of understanding. 
There is a a big shift that takes place here in verses 34 to 35. Notice what happened at the end of our section from last week. So when uh, Chris Metalman was here, he he taught us through that section there. But do you remember how it ended? It said in verse 34, when Jesus saw that, uh, or sorry, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And it says then, after that, what happened? No one dared to ask Jesus any more questions. <laughs> they had thrown all their best uh, weapons at him. They had thrown all their best tactics at Jesus. And Jesus is still left standing. And he's not just standing. He is uh, advancing. And he takes that to the next level here in verse 35. Because he is no longer on the defensive. But now he begins to take the offensive posture. Right? He's allowed them to have their fun and their games and their attempts to try to trap him in his words. But now Jesus is ready to strike. And he gets at the heart of these men and the religious establishment of their day. And what he does, he begins right in the same way that they have. They've been asking him all kinds of questions uh, that he's been able to answer. And now he is going to flip things around and he is going to ask them a question. He doesn't have to ask a lot. He just asks one question. And it's about the coming Messiah, or he describes it here, the Christ. Uh, the Christ is just the, the Greek word for the, the word Messiah, which is the Jewish word, right? So uh, at the end of the day, both of those are titles referring to the, the, the Savior, the Deliverer of God's people. That's at the heart of this question that he asks. And so he asks a question of the scribes here about the coming Messiah. After all, such responses reveal much more about what they believe about the identity of this Messiah. So Jesus' question is going to show them that this deliverer that they have such high hopes for is much more than their traditional expectations. And so he asks them the question in verse 35, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? That is right there the question. How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David And by son of David, he just uh, means a descendant of David. So not like literally his son, but one of his offspring, right? And this, this is not a, a wrong, uh, wrong assumption on their part because uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 talks about how God gave a promise to David that one of his descendants would rule eternally as the king and the deliverer of God's people. So they had a right uh, assumption to believe that the Christ would be somebody who came from David's lineage. But Jesus wants to challenge their traditional expectations by setting this question against the backdrop of another psalm that David himself wrote from Psalm 110, verse 1. Now, interestingly enough, Psalm 110, you think about all the like popular psalms that are out there, right? Some of you know like Psalm 23 or, or Psalm 1 or Psalm 139. Like all these are really uh, common psalms. Psalm 110 is not necessarily the one that first comes to our mind. And yet, if you were to include direct quotations and allusions to it in the New Testament, it is the most referenced psalm in all the Bible. In all the Bible. Uh, Especially in the New Testament, it's uh, either directly or indirectly referred to 33 times, which is impressive considering there's only 27 books in the New Testament. So it's a pretty foundational passage. So the question is, what's, what's the conundrum here? What's, what's the issue? What's wrong with the fact that the scribes believe that the Messiah, the Christ, would be a descendant of David? Well, when Jesus brings up Psalm 110 here, he says, well, David himself, when he was writing this psalm in the Holy Spirit, in other words, it wasn't just David's opinion. This was God-inspired, God writing through David. He said... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. 
In other words, David's son could only be David's Lord if he existed both before David and after David. Sometimes this is confusing, so I want to kind of put it in a way that it might be helpful for you to see on the screen here. So this is what Jesus is getting at here. He's, he's referencing Psalm 110. He's saying if David was the one who wrote this, then what David is saying is this. The Lord, notice that's all caps. That's referring to the proper name of God, the name Yahweh, right? So you guys learned a lot of fancy Hebrew last week. I'm not going to do that for you this week. So I know you were maybe nervous about that, but uh, I am no Hebrew scholar. But what I do know is that this means Yahweh. This is the proper name for God. So he's saying the Lord, the Lord God says to my, and if he's talking about my, that would be David, my Lord. Lord capital, or capital L, but all lowercase, meaning my master, my, uh, my deliverer. In other words, this is kind of a, I understand this can kind of be confusing, but what, what he's getting at is if David is referring to the coming Messiah, he's referring to somebody who is both before him and yet also after him. Uh, because the title son suggests some level of subordination and inferiority. Uh, I mean, after all, the son of a king is merely the prince until the father dies. Uh, and the shocking thing about Psalm 110 is that David refers to his son as his Lord. How can he be both Inferior as his descendant, and yet superior to him as his Lord. This is upside down unless the son somehow has greater status than the father, David himself. <laughs> In other words, he's challenging the traditional no notion that these guys had about who the Messiah would be. I like the way Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says, Jesus had not only answered questions his opponents regarded as unanswerable, he now asked them a question that they found to be unanswerable. They had no idea how to respond back to this. And it says here that the people heard him gladly, but we know from the other gospel accounts, uh, we know that no one, including the scribes, were able to answer his question. They've been stumped. They don't know how to justify the fact that this deliverer could both be a descendant of David, yet be also David's master. We know on this side of history that that could be the case because Jesus himself is God, right? He has existed before David. He has existed after David. And so in many ways, he's trying to help them uh, see that their traditional understanding that this guy was just going to be some descendant, some offspring, some just uh, political ruler and warrior was limited. It was narrow-minded. Jesus showed that the correct answer that the Messiah is David's son does not equate to a right understanding. In other words, they had the right answers, but they lack the appropriate understanding. But secondly, we see in this story here how Jesus' warning exposes a lack of authenticity. Because now what Jesus does in verses 38 to 40 is he exposes them by issuing a warning uh, to the people by pointing a finger right at the people he just called out, which was the scribes, these religious leaders who had been the teachers and the authority for the Jewish people for so long. And he issues the warning to the people in the midst of them. He says, beware. Beware. Right? That's, that's strong language to use of people. Most of you are uh, used to that type of language as it relates to uh, all kinds of other severe warnings in our culture. Right? So you might go up to a house where it's got that nice uh, big sign on it that says, what, beware of Dog, right? Yeah. Beware of dogs. Something used to scare you away as if, you know, if you were going to trespass, this dog will literally rip your head off, right? Okay, I get the message. I'm not going to go anywhere near it, right? Uh, the warning of uh, an electric fence. How many of you have ever touched an electric fence before? 
Oh, wow, it's far more of you than I expected. That's awesome. Uh, well, not awesome. <laughs> that came out wrong. That, that's shocking. <laughs> okay, never mind. It's too early. Right? So you get those warnings. You have the, uh, the no trespassing signs, right? We have in our backyard, it's private property, like, you know, after about 40 feet out. And then we have these nice no trespassing signs right uh, into our backyard. It's kind of interesting, right? So in other words, Jesus, by putting up this, this warning to the people, he's saying that these men are dangerous. Now think about that. These are the guys who have been the leaders, the teachers of Israel. And Jesus is saying, you look at these guys, beware of them. Everything you think is true and great about them, this is a warning. Avoid it. Stay away from it. Do not be fooled by their appearances. Notice he, he kind of calls out all the different aspects of these men. He says, beware of the scribes who, first of all, they like to walk around in long robes. And you're like, oh, okay, long robes. Big deal. I like robes too. I wear them every morning in the wintertime, right? But in this culture, these robes, these would have been like uh, these white shawls that these scribes would have put on and walked around in to draw attention to themselves. In fact, one of the ways they would do that is they would have... Uh, tassels on the end of these and they like the long tassels because the longer the tassels were the more glorious they would appear and it would get them noticed by other people in other words they want to draw attention to themselves they walk around in these long robes and they like it's uh, he says here they like to have the the greetings in the marketplace and this culture was very custom for whenever a scribe was walking by you would know because they were wearing their nice big white robes uh, whenever they would walk by, it was custom for you as kind of a, uh, as a subordinate to, to rise and to greet that person. And so I just have this picture in my mind of somebody who maybe uh, didn't know that the scribe was going through. And the scribe's like walking by them, like, like waiting for them to rise. <laughs> and they, I'm going to circle the block, uh, make sure this person notices me, right? That, that type of idea that, oh, I have to have every eye on me says that they like the best seats in the house. I mean, after all, who doesn't like the best seats in the house, right? They deserve the best. And in particular, you're talking about the best seats in the synagogues, which would have been uh, these benches that faced the congregation so that they could both uh, be seen by others. You're probably getting a, a common theme here. They like to be seen. And so that they can more easily address the crowd, so that they can be... Uh, more revered for their position of speaking authority. Fourthly, they like the place of honor at feasts. Uh, it was custom in that day that if you were to hold a big banquet, you would invite the scribes. You would invite the, the, the who's who of society. And so naturally, the scribes, they like the head of the table. That's why Jesus later on would say when you go to a feast, you don't sit in the place of honor. You sit in one of the lower spots, right? Because how embarrassing it would be if you sat in the seat of honor and then somebody more important than you showed up, like, you know, the president. And you have to be moved in front of everybody to the lowest position. In all of this, student, there is no love for God. Just for self. And certainly no love for others. Doesn't that get to the very heart of what we just learned last week? No love for God and no love for others. These verses show how they used the most able to help them get ahead. But it also shows how they used the most vulnerable to take advantage of. So in other words, they were all about getting noticed and being respected by others, but they also were not above taking advantage of the least and the weakest in their society. Because notice the very next line. It says in verse 40, who devour widows' houses. That, just, that line, just reading it, just feels gross reading it. Who devour widows' houses. Now, what he means by that is not exactly clear. In other words, we don't know what was particularly done. But what is clear is that they made widows 
their prey. Why? Because they were easy targets. After all, their husbands were probably the ones who controlled money and most of the financial decisions. And so after their husband died, uh, they were left in control of all these finances and all these things that they didn't know how to best utilize them. They didn't maybe know uh, what decisions needed to be made. But thank goodness there are scribes. Because those scribes can swoop in and under the guise of their religious counsel, give advice on how they should spend their money. You know, you really should be giving more to the temple treasury. You really shouldn't be so greedy. Your husband wouldn't want you to hold on to that money. You know, you, you know scribe Benjamin, you know, he's kind of falling on some hard times. You should really consider giving some of your extra donations to him. After all, in this culture, scribes actually weren't really wealthy. We think to ourselves just because they were religious elite, elite they were like naturally wealthy. When the reality is they really were kind of self-supported or supported by uh, donors and people who were helping them. And so you can naturally imagine how they could use that to their advantage and they could twist and manipulate uh, those who were more, more vulnerable. Man, this widow who has tons of cash now that her husband has died, let's see how we can manipulate the situation so that we can get her resources. I mean, does any of this just sound disgusting to you? He says, even in the midst of this, they put on such a good guise, right? They, they love to, to offer big, long prayers. Matthew chapter 6 reminds us that, you know, the, the, the scribes and Pharisees, they love to stand in places of honor so that people can see them praying. All of this revealed a severe, uh, revealed a severe lack of authenticity. There is no love for God, and there is certainly no love for anyone else. This is all a heart of self-love. That's what's driving this. Religion was just a show. It was a show for them and it was a show for others. And Jesus says, beware. Beware of people who make religion all about themselves. And then finally, we see here how Jesus' observation exposes a lack of sacrifice. We find Jesus and his disciples in verses 41 to 44 moving to a new location in the temple grounds. He's done teaching. He's now going and he's setting up shop in a different part of the temple. And he's doing so opposite the, the treasury. And the treasury would have been the section where everybody could have given their, their offerings, their donations to the temple. And this wall where this treasury would have been located would have had uh, about 13 different receptacles for putting them in for different uh, particular donations. A lot of that depended on how much you were giving and what you were giving it to. Uh, these, these chests or these jars would have been actually what, what are called shofar horns. So if you know of a shofar uh, it's like a, kind of like almost like a ram's horn, so it had a really big opening, but kind of a small, narrow, uh, kind of funneled into, so that you know it made it a lot harder for you to be able to to steal. But as Jesus sits there and he watches what's unfolding before his eyes, he notices all these people bringing in large donations. Right, they are they are bringing in money bags full of stuff to donate to this. I mean, and they are making a show of it. Um, again, this is the day and age where there were no checks. Uh, there weren't dollar bills. There were no credit cards. There weren't bank account transfers. There were only coins. And so you can imagine how the more coins you bring in, the more attention it draws. Um, how many of you guys in your families have ever had, or maybe you have for yourself, like a big uh, change jar. Have you ever had one of those where you just have like a ton of change built up in a big, big old jar? Um, I imagine to myself, like the show that they're putting on is kind of like bringing in that change jar. Uh, we, don't, we don't pass offering plates anymore, but could you imagine those like metal offering plates as they're being passed and all of a sudden you hear somebody dump their change jar into it, the clink, clink, clink noise of it all going in and everybody's like, what in the world is happening right now? 
That's what I envisioned was happening here. These guys coming in with these giant change bags and dumping them into this. And so it's not just something you can see, it's something you can hear. And in the midst of all this show, a small, poor widow approaches. And Jesus intently watches as she places two small coins into the offering box. The fact that it was so small means it was probably going to the free will offering, which would have been towards like uh, upkeep and things going on in like the temple grounds. Mark describes it here as two copper coins. The, the term that is used in the original language is as a, as a lita, which is the smallest coin in circulation at that time. So you think about in our culture, this, you know, America, the smallest coins we have are the penny, right? So um, he says these two things amounted up to a penny, which is just confusing because a penny is not really language they would have used in that culture. Um, really... The, the idea of it here is that these two coins would have added up to about 164th of a denarius. And we know from other texts that a denarius was about a day's worth of labor. So 164th of a day's worth of labor, you're like, okay, we're talking like pocket change at that point. It, it, it hardly amounts to, to anything. Insignificant in our eyes. It's hardly anything to take note of, and yet Jesus does exactly that. And he draws this out for his disciples. He says, you see this woman? She's the real winner here today. She's the one who's actually contributed the most to this offering. Why? Because of the sacrifice. Everyone else was giving out of their abundance. It didn't cost them much at all. But here, the cost was very real. In fact, Mark says, everything she had. Everything she had. Now, here's where I want to deviate a little bit from where most academics and most pastors go when they talk about this because... Uh, they, they turn most of the attention on to the widow and her offering, and I think that it must be commended. But I also think that in the midst of this, we can't lose sight of what the context has been telling us. What did he do up in verses 35 to 37? He drew out how ignorant the religious leaders of his day were. Verses 38 to 40, he just talked about how really the religious leaders cared more about the show of their religion than anything else. Verses 1 through 2 of chapter 13, he's going to say, listen, God is going to destroy this whole institution. This is not the type of worship that God desires. And so in the midst of all that, I want us to put these things in their proper contrast. So even though the woman should be commended for her sacrifice, at the same time, it should grieve us. Because number one, we see here uh, that they lacked sacrifice in their giving, right? What, sacrifice, what this woman gave was completely sacrificial on her part. What these guys gave hardly made a dent in their wallets, right? He's contrasting there so much the amount of lack of sacrifice that this was really, truly costing them. But secondly... What did we just learn about the religious institution and how they were treating widows of their day? It says that they were devouring widows' houses. And so I can't help but wonder, is Mark putting this here to show us, to give us kind of almost like a living illustration of what was happening in this society? Because even though this offering was great on her part, notice what it says. It said that it cost her everything that she had to live on. I don't know what prompted her to, to give everything she had, but it makes you wonder, was she somehow manipulated into this? Because you have to ask yourself the question at this point, now that she has given everything, everything she has to live on, who's going to take care of her now? Who's going to provide for her? 
Again, I want to be careful on how I'm saying this here this morning, but I don't believe that God would say, hey, if you only have two pennies left to live on, you should just give it to the church and go home and just, you know, die, right? I don't think that that's truly what God is asking of us, but I think the temple here had become a place where widows were robbed of what they had. Some people say, well, this woman was willing to do what the rich young ruler was not willing to do, right? What was the rich young ruler asked to do by Jesus? Jesus told him, hey, go and sell all of your possessions, and then you will truly have treasure in heaven and come follow me, and he would not do it. But here you have the woman who's willing to do that. She's willing to give everything she had. But the difference is, for the rich young ruler, what was his idol? His possessions. Everything that he was living on. For this woman, she hardly had anything to live on. And so I don't know that it's fair to contrast those and say, well, she was willing to do what the other guy wouldn't, when the reality is his money was his idol. He was not willing to make the large sacrifice to follow Jesus. And why do I see this maybe as more of a condemnation on the religious system more than anything? Well, because this is the very moment in which Jesus leaves the temple. This is the very last thing that happens. And then notice verse 1 of chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Isn't this place amazing? And after everything that just had transpired and this final incident that he just went through with this woman, what does Jesus say? Oh, you're right, guys. This place is like Disneyland. It's Great. No. Jesus says in verse 2 Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Complete and utter destruction. This is not the type of worship that God honors. What we think is great, he will tear down. We'll circle back to that in just a moment, but as the the curtain falls here on this section of Mark, we're left asking ourselves, so what what do we need to do with this? What does Jesus want us to learn and to glean from this section of Mark's gospel. I think, first of all, we need to be reminded of this, that it is possible to have the right answers without the right understanding. We see this in Jesus' question where the scribes were technically correct that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, but they lacked an appropriate understanding of what that meant. They left no room for the miraculous in their thinking about the Messiah. They... Uh, we see this in other ways too, even by Jesus' own disciples, right? They saw Jesus time and time again as some type of military leader who was going to deliver them from Roman oppression, but yet overlooked the Old Testament sections where uh, the Messiah was also described as a suffering servant who would give his life sacrificially for the good of his people to rescue them. In other words, they were picking and choosing what they wanted to believe was true and yet disregarding the things that also needed to be true. They had the right answers, but they had the wrong understanding. And right answers don't automatically mean we have a right comprehension. Listen, I'm thankful that many of you know your Bibles. I'm thankful that many of you know the right answers to questions that we talk about on Wednesdays or on Sundays that you process together with your families. I I love that. But that will mean nothing unless you strive to understand why such things are true. Right? You have to understand why those things are true. Jesus is not waiting for you to get to heaven and give you an exam and just seeing, oh, do you have the right answers? Because right answers mean nothing unless you believe and you understand why those things are true. This is a horrible uh, comparison, but this is like, as I was thinking about this, this is kind of that whole concept with common core math, right? It's not enough that you would understand what the correct answer is, but how you get there, right? 
That's what God cares about. Do you understand why this is true? I'm not waiting to just give you a spitball exam so that you can give me the right answers because right answers at the end of the day do not mean anything if it has not changed your heart. But I would also say, secondly, it's also possible to enjoy being around Jesus yet want nothing to do with him. Where do I see that in this passage? Well, verse 37 ends with people hearing Jesus gladly. And they were excited to be a part of what was happening with Jesus and all that he was teaching and all that he was saying. It's an interesting response, and I'm not fully sure what that entails or why Mark used that language, but I do know that such interest in Jesus doesn't always translate into following him. If right answers don't always equate to right understanding, then enjoying Jesus doesn't always equate to loving Jesus. There is a danger, student. There is a danger to want to be around Jesus, around his people, around his activity, around his teaching, and yet want nothing to truly do with him. Well, all the benefits that come from maybe church life and your friends and the social aspects. Man, church is great. Love being around Jesus with people. And yet want nothing to do with Jesus himself. After all, we don't see these people leaving the temple with Jesus. In fact, we see such people who are quick to flip on Jesus a few days later and call for his death. Student, do not mistake your enjoyment of church for a relationship with Jesus. It is not less than that, but it is certainly much more than that as well. Third, this is very obvious. Beware of practicing your faith just to be seen. Beware of practicing your faith just to be seen. This is the very warning that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, where he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Again, notice he uses that very same word, beware. That's a strong language to use of people who practice religious things, who are good moral people who strive to, quote, do good things and look really good on the outside. And yet he's saying, watch it. Beware. And I think that we have to issue that command and that warning first and foremost to our own hearts. Beware that you are not just doing all of this church life stuff just to be seen by other people. Just as a way of status, just a way of being part of the crowd. Don't do your good things to be noticed by other people, right? Beware of practicing your so-called faith before other people. And along with that, I think we also have to be warned of this, to stop playing the comparisons game. And I think these two are closely related to each other. Because so often what we do, if we are living in that third point of practicing our faith just to be seen, then we are tempted to start playing the comparisons game. And what I mean by the comparisons game is that we view our uh, religious maturity and our spirituality through the lens of how am I doing in relation to other people? How am I doing compared to my classmates, my teammates, those in my ministry? Am I doing better or worse than so-and-so? And by doing so, we are making others the standard of how we should or should not be living. All of this flows from seeing the Christian faith as a public display, right? If our Christianity is really just how good we look compared to other people, then this is where you will land. And if you play this game, you will either be exhausted the rest of your life because you don't measure up to the spiritually mature people around you. You're trying to, you're striving to, but you're not measuring up and you're going to be exhausted the rest of your life, student, if that's how you live. But at the same time, 
You could also end up prideful and judgmental because others don't measure up to you. Because if you start to think to yourself, you have it figured out and you're doing really well, then guess what? Those who don't meet your standard, you start to look down on. You start to feel bad for. And you start to put yourself in a position that is not reserved for you. The only person that you must measure yourself up against is Jesus. Why? Because he is both the standard and, get this student, this is important, don't miss this. He is both the standard and he is the solution. Because when you look at Christ, you will see just how far short you fall from God's glory. And yet, when you look to Christ, you see the perfect solution, the perfect righteousness who can stand in your place so that you don't have to measure up yourself because Christ has already done that for you. That is where you need to rest. That is where you need to focus your attention. Because of Jesus, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. When we look at each other, we see that we are all level before Christ. That's why we all need him. And then fifthly, I'm going to just be careful here for a moment, just to camp out here. Jesus' harshest words in all the Gospels are reserved for spiritual imposters. Those who are truly making their life about looking good for the sake of others because the reality is there is nothing changed on the inside. I think about Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is giving a, a very clear warning to those who look good, practice the righteous deeds on the outside, and Jesus says about these people, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There is nothing more tragic than to think that you are living for the Lord and yet him say at the end of the day, I never knew you. I never knew you. He would describe these Pharisees and these scribes in Matthew's account, which is kind of the parallel to what we just looked at this morning, In verses 25 to 28, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and are all unclean. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are all full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus cares far more about what is on the inside than what is on the outside. And Jesus says for those who are more concerned about the outside, Mark 12 verse 40 that we just looked at here, there is a greater condemnation that awaits them. And all that they think is beautiful on the outside. Jesus reminds us in verse 2 of chapter 13 here. He says, you see what looks beautiful and what you think looks really religious on the outside. God will destroy it. He will bring it to an end. What looks beautiful on the outside is destined for destruction since the inside is corrupt. Student prioritize the state of your soul, not your externals, right? If you are living to just make yourself externally righteous, you will fall far short. Do not put up the guise, put up the pose. Like we see with Judas, we'll talk about him in the weeks ahead, but really, truly prioritize 
a soul that is right with the Lord. And then finally this morning, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus means loss is gain. This really goes back to our theme from winter camp with finding joy in Christ. Philippians 3, 7 through 8 reminds us Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things, all things. And I count them as garbage, rubbish, in order that I would gain Christ. The widow in this story is indeed the anti-scribe because she is not thinking of herself above all else. She makes the sacrifice because she believes that God is worth it. It may have come from the pressures of the religious leaders of the day, but even then, she was convinced that this sacrifice was worth it. That to lose everything she had, all that she had to live on, was somehow gain in her mind. For Jesus, the value of any gift is not the amount that you give, but the cost to the giver. For us, that is certainly financial, that is true, but even more importantly, what I want you to realize here this morning is this, that's true of your very lives. Jesus says, whoever wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's sacrifice. That costs you your very life. Jesus cares far more about the sacrifice that is involved to truly follow him above anything else. So student, make sure you are prioritizing the right things. Prioritize the things that God prioritizes because he cares far more about what is on the inside than on the outside. So God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these students. Um, Really appreciate the time to really process this together today and pray that you would bless them now as they think about these things, as they process them together at at home or even in their own personal time of reflection and study. Uh, We thank you that you are a God of grace and we thank you that because of Christ, we have both the, uh, (laughs) Lord, the standard and the solution to our sins. That because of Christ, we have all the righteousness we need And so we no longer have to perform for you, nor do we perform for the sake of others, but we live out of the abundance and the overflow of our hearts as joyful worshipers of you. So bless, Lord, um, our reflections on you today as we go out into our time of worship. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.